Good afternoon, welcome. My name's Colin Mayer. I'm uh, a, a professor at the Vatnik uh, School of Government, having formerly been at uh, the Said Business School. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to this, the third session in this series on leveling up regional disparities, inequality, and social inclusion. In the first two sessions, we looked at the subjects of the role of business and skills formation in addressing regional disparities. Today, we turn from looking at issues to looking at places or looking at a place, in particular, South Yorkshire. And it's my very great pleasure to be able to introduce Dave Smith, who is the Chief Executive of the South Yorkshire Combined Regional Authority. Uh, before that, he was Chief Executive of Sunderland City. And before that, he was Assistant CEO or something like that of Liverpool and Rotherham. So there are a few people who had more experience of place-based local regional government than Dave has. And it's a great pleasure to have him talking about this subject this afternoon. He has been uh, educated in three universities, uh, in Sheffield, in Manchester, uh, and he got his doctorate in Warwick. So perhaps I can just begin after that very brief introduction to your background to ask you to tell us a little bit about your career development and how you forged this interest in reviving uh, left-behind places. I think for me, it really began, um, as most things do, I suppose, in, in the sense of where I was born and brought up. I, I lived in an industrial town in, in, in as part of Salford in Greater Manchester, and um, my family um, were a mixture of steel workers and uh, my father uh, was captain on the tugs uh, on the Manchester Ship Canal, uh, taking um, um, ships from Liverpool dock in, up to Manchester. And I, and I experienced firsthand um, the decline of those industries, uh, the ultimate closure of the uh, canal as, as a working uh, canal uh, and the closure of the local steel plants. And as I, uh, as I developed into my, into my working career, I experienced um, the, the violent, really, um, changes to um, the economy in the north of England and, and some of the, um, the, um, the consequences, the impacts of those changes. Of course, people, People will remember and and um, and have seen the images of the impacts on that generation uh, of people who, who were working in the coal mines and the steel industry and indeed the shipyards in the northeast when they went. And those images are about that particular generation who lost their livelihoods. But the reality is the impact is far deeper, far longer, and far more profound than just one generation. And um, I discovered, uh, particularly uh, particularly working in the northeast, 
and again in, in South Yorkshire more recently, um, that the effects weren't just profound in the sense of the economic shocks of it. It was profound in the sense of loss of identity. So, you know, people, communities, places no longer knew what they were there for. Um, in, in Sunderland, it was so, so dramatic um, that there was no, in, no sign in Sunderland that there'd ever been one of the biggest shipyards uh, in, in England. You would not know it ever was there. It had been entirely wiped out and erased from any physical memory. Uh, the same is largely true in South Yorkshire in when you consider the scale and nature of the steel industry at one time and, of course, um, the coal fields. And that loss of identity, as well as the economic impacts to people, has been intergenerational. And um, over the years, of course, the, the dynamic has changed, but only to the extent that um, the gap between those who forged new, new identities, new means, new futures, and those who've not been able to access that grows ever wider. Um, so there is a real sense in which of people in South Yorkshire who've not been able to access the opportunities that indeed people like me had to go to university and, and be educated and have choices. And those who haven't just uh, is reflected in the simple dynamics of the place. Uh, the, the number of people who leave South Yorkshire to, to, to take opportunities that they've earned through their education and the number of people who don't have that choice. And if you look just simply at the movements of people in and out of the region, there's barely any movement which shows how the economy itself just has lacked, now lacks any sort of dynamic. Facing up to those sorts of challenges, understanding them, appreciating the relationship between people's identity, their place, and of course their economic opportunity has become the driving factor for me about why I do the job I do and why I've done the jobs I've done. Well, that's very interesting and, and, and we'll explore a bit further that notion of loss of identity and sense of place in a minute. Um, but I just want to turn first to a little bit about the history of Sheffield and the South Yorkshire area and how it's got to where it is today. And before, before I pose that, let me just say that uh, we're going to have a conversation for about 40 minutes or so in total, uh, after which we'll throw it open to questions from you and also from people who are uh, watching online. Uh, and those who are watching online, please do take the opportunity of posing questions as if you were here, and then they'll be read out to us uh, so that we'll be able to answer them. So do please put your questions into the Q&A function of Zoom. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the history of the growth and flourishing of Sheffield and South Yorkshire and then its collapse to today? Sure. The, it is it, worth recalling that, um, that Sheffield and, and wider South Yorkshire was really uh, 
literally at the crucible of the first industrial revolution. It, it was the, at the heart of um, steel making uh, and um, the development of the whole steel industry underpinning um, um, the, the whole period in the 19th century of the growth of uh, the UK's economies supported by huge coal fields that were literally providing the fuels for, for steel making. Um, not only in the sense that we, that we understand it in a post-war period where, where those industries were nationalised and, and agglomerated, but in the period before the war, before the Second World War, when, when Sheffield and South Yorkshire was a myriad of coal mines and, and, and steel plants of various sizes and, of course, various specialisms too. People will obviously know because it remains part of part of Sheffield's um, current uh, economy about the cutlery industry and the whole sense of that design and development and delivery of, um, of very clever, very smart engineering around the use of steel, not just in the big ingots. And, and Sheffield carried the, that right through in terms of its prosperity. But, but the scale of those industries, both in steel and coal mining, spawned a huge amount of ancillary um, industries, ancillary support uh, economy, um, what we call now uh, SMEs, um, that galvanized on the back of those major industries and innovated, formed, formed different um, companies, different types of sectors, different opportunities, not just, of course, in the region or even just in the UK, but worldwide. And um, it created a massive sense of pride, pride to the extent of it, it captured in its development in, 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 terms of, uh, in terms of the master cutler uh, in, um, in Sheffield. So the whole industry is, um, is galvanized around a history that's captured in the, in the, in, in the, um, in the institutions that have been formed as part of civil society in Sheffield. So it went far more, far deeper than individual industries, far deeper than this, the spin-outs that created it. It became the core, core of the institutions of civil society. Um, and that was equally reflected in the coal mines uh, in terms of the workers' institutions, the nature of the community resilience that was formed to support um, communities and to help people, those communities support themselves in, in, after all, what was a very dirty, unhealthy industry that caused um, huge amounts of um, uh, uh, impacts on people's life expectancy and health, and for which communities have forged uh, the means of their own sort of public health institutions that supported those people in middle and later life. So it became and was the whole way of being rather than just a means of how people were employed. So the, the demise of those things um, in the uh, starting in the 60s, but really taking for, forward in great pace in the late 70s and into the 80s, didn't just mean that those industries were lost and those jobs were lost but it did literally tore those communities apart. The, the civil society broke down 
and and for those of you with long memories or have, have looked at the history of this will have seen the acute nature that, that became uh, in many places uh, in South Yorkshire as they did in other regions in in the north of England where communities became no-go areas where crime was so high uh, youth crime in particular was so high that there were places that um, uh, local government officers wouldn't go that even police would only go uh, in patrol cars and and staffed up which was simply um, a product of all that loss of identity that loss of purpose in people's lives um, that in the more in the in the in the 90s and during the 2000s was spent a great deal of time was spent overcoming that civil breakdown um, to give people not yet a purpose not yet a real investment in the future but it did at least provide for those communities to have some some sense of belonging again some sense of stability some sense of feeling that it was their communities um, that they could own and belong to. And I think that's been the journey today. Okay, so a, a history of remarkable growth from the Industrial Revolution, followed by collapse 50 or 60 years ago, and it's remained in that state basically since then. Despite a lot of attempts uh, and regional policies to promote its redevelopment. Economic, simple economics would tell us You'd expect that, given the fact that business has collapsed, that properties are vacated, that people don't have jobs, means that property prices are low, uh, cost of labor is low, and, and supply is relatively uh, high, so that business should be pouring in. But it hasn't happened why what what what's wrong with that view of the world and what's the real underlying problem i think i think i think the um there are of course many aspects to, as to the answer to that question and uh, um there, there is no one there is no one reason but the, but there are some very significant ones that i think um are the ones that preoccupy preoccupy me. Uh, my mind and um, firstly that clearly with the best of intentions and to see uh, the desire for change um, solutions to the challenges that I've just described to you were seen um, in public investment uh, largely in the infrastructure uh, within within our communities in South Yorkshire. So, put simply, a, a great deal of money was poured into local communities, urban centres that, that, that was about the public realm to make places look and feel better. Um, but, but that was achieved whilst not seeing that that was neither that that wasn't a sustainable solution because the fact that those places did not look good and were not getting better was fundamentally an issue of prosperity it was fundamentally issued that not enough people could generate enough wealth um, to lift uh, that, that those places 
So you saw cycle after cycle is when the economy in the UK was strong, you'd see public investment in the public realm, in communities. And when, and when those cycles were at low ebb, that investment would fade away, but it would need to come around another cycle again. And we've had 40 years of that, those cycles going around without fundamental change in the economy. So it's an issue of public policy, first of all. The second issue is, uh, is the issue of um, the, role, the role of the private sector. So um, um, South Yorkshire has the unenviable um, reputation that it's the only region in the UK, well, certainly in England, where during the boom years of the 2000s, the private economy, the private sector economy shrank. Um, and that was on the back of years of uh, a, a private sector decline uh, during the during the 90s. And um, the, um, the the question about why that happened for me was really about um, the inability um, to access private investment at scale. Uh, in a way that would um, that would ensure that we not only attracted new investor, new business into to South Yorkshire, but that those business, those indigenous businesses that were there, which is largely an SME community, left over from the demise of the big industries, couldn't access investment to grow. Of course, um, you, you sit that alongside a national policy that increasingly invested in the certainty of growth that came in London and the Southeast, because there clearly was a period of huge growth and expansion of London and the Southeast, which could attract private investment to give a certainty of return, a speed of return that, uh, that an open market in the north of England simply can't match, simply can't match. So a combination of, of an increasingly centralised economy, um, along with a public policy that was based from Westminster seeking to regenerate through driving infrastructure, was a perfect storm for the north of England. Uh, and um, without, whilst recognising the best of intentions, simply reinforced um, the reinforced the position for South Yorkshire and meant that the, the dial hasn't shifted despite huge amounts of public policy and public investment that's gone in over the years. So let's pursue those different elements of the private and the public sector, starting with the private sector and business. Te tell us a little bit about the landscape uh, in South Yorkshire in terms of business, in terms of SMEs and uh, the availability of funding sources? So we, we have a number of uh, challenges. We also have a number of opportunities. The, the, the challenges have, have come in that we don't have the business density we need. So we're largely an SME economy, uh, but there is nowhere near the level of density of business required to sustain growth and development. We suffer from a huge uh, productivity challenge. Uh, labor is cheap, capital investment is difficult. And in that context, most uh, SMEs will invest in, ch in cheap labor, 
not in not in the adoption of technologies that would improve its technological opportunities that would make it more competitive so we have a so we have a weak underdeveloped sme sector whilst that is the predominant um sector uh, we also um we also have a, the challenge of um an undeveloped uh, underdeveloped large-scale blue chip um sort of sector that would attract new and developing and competitive smes so we have a combination of, of those two issues at play we have though um a hugely successful um and further developing relationship between our two universities and and industry and this is coming in two in in several forms all based around our prime capabilities so in the context of the history of giving you you won't you you won't find it surprising to say that that one of our prime capabilities is in materials development so not just in steel of course now but in all sorts of composite materials particularly lightweight materials that the university of sheffield is extremely strong on from a research and development opportunity and for which there is real hunger in the manufacturing sector worldwide particularly in things like automotive sector particularly in things like the aero sector where materials need to be lighter um, stronger constantly developing so the university of sheffield in those composite material industries in in the energy sector and in some and in some particular forms of uh, of manufacturing processes has been hugely attractive to industry a magnet essentially that has drawn world world um, leading um, companies like boeing uh, mclaren in the automotive sector uh, rolls royce and others to be attracted to have significant bases um in in sheffield where having the same but but uh, much younger development in life sciences particularly around health and well-being drawing on sports technology for elite sports athletes that are being developed in research and development between business and hallam university translating that that elite technology for sports men and women into new technologies that will affect uh, um, the health and well-being of the broader population so fantastic developments but there's a however and that and the however is we're really poor as the uk is outside the sort of oxford cambridge triangle in being able to convert uh, that ip into scaled manufacturing so it's absolutely fabulous that the university is a magnet the two universities are magnets are attracting those industries securing them for the purpose of research and development but most of that development is then dispersed actually mostly internationally some in the uk but almost none in the region so it's not impacting on the region in terms of those new ips being developed and scaled and it's not impacting in the region in terms of an opportunity at scale for
for the, those uh, SMEs to occupy a supply chain to those primary developments. The key for us, the absolute key for us, is to take that next step and capture much more of those developments for commercial opportunity in the region that will grow, not, not just scale, but better jobs with, with futures that will increase prosperity for us. And, and for that to occupy a role across South Yorkshire. So, uh, we, so seeing it in logistics, seeing it in rail industry, seeing it in the uh, aerospace industry, that where we've got opportunities in prime capabilities that exist in Doncaster in South Yorkshire, seeing it in construction and, and IT industries in Barnsley where we've got prime capabilities. And the universities are now taking the responsibility to reach out to those uh, other opportunities to cluster, for which we can then uh, develop the uh, opportunity to, uh, to, to, um, to capture those IPs, to capture those SMEs and to cluster it around those opportunities. Okay, so that, that, that's a very interesting description. So some areas of real strength around materials, health, life sciences, uh, and also a recognition of having different clusters in different places and the importance of place. So what can be done to address this issue of scaling up? And there, and there are, I think, two different elements to scaling up. How do you go from the small startup companies to national and international leaders? And the second is, how do you develop the presence of existing large companies in the South Yorkshire area? Any thoughts on either of those? A, a, num a number of thoughts, really. Uh, st starting at this perhaps least measurable elements of this, but absolutely critical, it, it is to capture the imagination of, um, of, of entrepreneurs and investors to see and understand the opportunity, to recognise the validity of what's happening uh, in, um, in places like South Yorkshire, to overcome stereotypical attitudes, understandings of uh, certainly South Yorkshire, but the North as a whole, and to recognise this, these ventures are real um, and they are captured around ideas and they have a purpose and direction. That's the first thing. The second element, so a narrative, a real narrative that compels, that's compelling. It brings confidence. It brings a level of commitment and it brings an appetite to take risk. That's the first element. The second element is really to back that with the hard, um, the hard support, uh, both financial and advisory that our businesses need to grow and, and, to, and to foster. And, and that, that really needs to challenge uh, and deal and address two issues. We need to overcome um, uh, the, the uncertainty of the market conditions that currently lead investors um, to back uh, 
the, the, the best and optimum investment that they can clearly realise in London and the South East that they can't yet realise in South Yorkshire. So we need to create the right incentives and the right supports for those investors to unlock that private investment that would enable businesses in the form of loans, in the form of equity, in the, in the forms of venture capital that would appeal to that broad sector of opportunity, both for startups, for developing SMEs, and also obviously for bigger businesses, we will want to realize that investment. And that isn't going to happen without providing the right incentives. It's clearly not going to happen when the best returns, the biggest returns, continue to be available in, uh, in particular parts of the UK and not available in others. Those, those, in locking those opportunities will come from leading institutions and leading investors taking those risks and being pioneers themselves to take those opportunities to invest. It will also need a fresh look of how, how we use public money. So I think we need to do some, what I think would be groundbreaking work, but, but work that we're really keen to do uh, and that we're working on with support, uh, obviously, from the likes of yourself, Colin and, 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 and Paul Collier and, and Phil McCann and others from Sheffield University which is to, to make the argument that public investment doesn't just need to come in the form of infrastructure investment in for transport and so on. Although all those things are welcome and needed. But we need to understand that public investment is required in, the, in forms that support that, that private investment into business, that begin to de-risk the opportunity for business to grow, that de-risk the forms of private investment that go into those businesses, that enable those, that private investment to scale to the different types of business we're trying to unlock. Because that, more than anything, will balance the market forces out for us and provide a playing field on which investors and businesses will take the risk to grow using the IP that's being developed with the universities and others um, that will really not just grow the density of business in South Yorkshire, not just improve productivity, although it'll do both of those things, but will restructure the economy. Because the, the clarity here needs to be that this is about innovation. This is about building an economy for the future. And we can see what that economy might be in a three or five year timescale, because we're seeing it before our eyes in the work that's happening between businesses and the universities. As, as they're working on solutions to real life problems in manufacturing materials and in energy that, are, that they're delivering on now. Beyond that three, five year horizon, who knows what it looks like? I'm certainly not clever enough to make those predictions. But simply growing to that, with that direction of travel, it will then start to disperse. It will then start to find its own routes and own routes to market, which will then grow itself. But it's getting over that hump. And that element for me 
that relationship between university development, businesses, access to finance and support from the public sector is the key bit for us that will unlock that private sector growth that we fail to see at the levels we need it to unlock the potential in South Yorkshire. So that's a, that's a very important insight in so far as you're saying the key role that the public sector can play is not so much picking winners, which always raises concerns, but backing investors, helping to match funding or underwrite funding that comes from the private sector. Can, can we explore a little bit more the uh, public uh, sphere? And let's start at the, the local level. Can, can you just describe the relationship between the organization that you run, namely the regional authority and the city and how well this uh, uh, structure functions and how much of a, a agreement and consensus there exists between the different uh, bodies in the South Yorkshire area? The, the, the Merrill Combined Authority it is an economic body. Um, it, it was created along a lot, obviously, along with the others that have been done. There's now 10 in England. Um, were created on the basis that um, to have the opportunity to, to change and innovate and develop economies that could have an impact, not just for the benefit of the region, that, that but that could be competitive on a national and international scale, we had to give these things scale. Dealing only at a local place level simply doesn't have that scale, simply can't bring it together sufficient of um, economic uh, levers required to make change happen and to unlock opportunity and competitiveness uh, that's required to, to move us on. And that's the, that's the reason combined authorities um, were uh, created, led by directly elected mayors, whose responsibility was to understand and develop policy at that regional economic level. The role within those mayoral combined authorities of, in, of individual places, of individual local authorities as representing those places is key in in articulating and expressing the needs the identities the development of purpose and and in, and articulating the prime capabilities both current and future of those local places there is a, an evolution required to mature those relationships it is in the nature of uh, politics, certainly in this country, which tends to um, which tends to fall into the trap of, uh, of playing a zero sum game. That there there is, there must be an exclusive winner and loser, um, and the risk to the relationship between a combined authority and the individual local authorities that we fall into that trap. Instead, 
of seeing what we should see as we mature those relationships is that what we're actually describing are essentially layers of an onion. So we see at a strategic level what needs to happen to make a functioning, productive um, economy at a regional level. But in its particular application to local places and local communities that were able at a different level layer of the union articulate those and meld them so if I, if I give you one example of this where we've been working on this uh, in south yorkshire is i've given you the story of growth that we want to see but it's equally important in a South Yorkshire context, the individual places in South Yorkshire, um, that they want to see this growth lead to greater levels of inclusivity. It is not growth at any cost. It is not growth that leads to greater, disparate, greater and greater disparities of wealth between those who benefit from the growth and those who don't. That the, the common parlance for this is about good growth. It's about seeing growth where, the, where those who are least able to access that opportunity are giving, given the opportunity and are helped and assisted to access that opportunity, which is about investing in their life opportunities. It's about the practicalities of a skill system that works for those who are accessing it not simply for those who are imparting the knowledge and, and uh, anyway, the providers of the skills. It's about having a transport system that is both sustainable from an economic and environmental point of view, but enables people who are in the most uh, disadvantaged communities, who are also incidentally in uh, in those communities that are most isolated because they're generally in the coal fields they're generally in what was previously coal uh, field towns which are primarily in uh, in rural areas it's being able to help those communities access decent reliable affordable sustainable transport to get to where the, the clusters are happening, to get where the jobs are, to get to the colleges and to the universities to access further and higher education. So being able to marry uh, where we're taking the economy, where we're growing businesses, where we're growing clusters, where we're, where we're developing skills, uh, colleges and other forms of further and higher education, but ensuring that those who um, need to benefit from those opportunities do. And that isn't just about providing those people with life opportunities, or clearly that's a massive driver. It's also about lifting that prosperity gap. So if we want urban centres that are in themselves prosperous, that bring the right range of um, retail offer the right range of leisure offer the right ancillary opportunities then we have to put money in people's pockets we have to be able 
to provide opportunities that don't lead, lead to high levels of in-work poverty, which is what we suffer from at the moment, that actually give people career grades, that actually provide opportunities for their future so that they can grow. Because that, 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 the realisation of that prosperity feeds into the economy and it becomes in itself self-sustaining. And that's the, that's the happy place we need to get to. And who, who do you think should be leading what you were just describing as a creation of a sense of purpose, of common purpose amongst different people, or a return, as you were saying at the beginning, to a sense of identity and a sense of the importance of place? Who should be driving this forward? Oh, for me, um, it, we have to see this as dispersed leadership. We have to see this as requiring um, energy throughout, throughout. Of course, there has to be leadership um, from, um, from our political leadership um, in, the, in the mayor and in the individual councils. There has to be leadership from our civic institutions in the form of our universities, our colleges and, and, um, and other institutions. But there also has to be community leadership. There has to be bottom-up drive. There has to be belief. There has to be buy-in. There has to be... This has to represent the needs and interests, views and aspirations of our communities. And, and it's only when we meld those together we create the confidence in those communities that they feel they want to engage and in engaging that we are listening and embracing their views, needs and opportunities will we bring it together. And I think at this stage of gestation where we are, a lot of that leadership is coming from, from our political institutions and from our civic institutions. And we're beginning to touch and understand and engage with our communities through the, through those political leadership to begin to uh, to to begin to to gain that. The the other element for me is businesses themselves. The um, from my perspective, uh, local enterprise partnerships, which were formed um, in in, uh, in by the coalition government back in 2010-11 which at the, the, that stage were simply the amalgamation of uh, business representatives along with um, local uh, councils to represent and give a voice to business have developed a great deal since then. And they've had a checkered history and they've worked in some places and not in others, um, as is inevitable with any new ideas. But speaking from my own experience in South Yorkshire, the local enterprise partnership as this source of a partnership between the local authorities, the mayor and, and the business representation has worked incredibly well. And um, the, the articulation of our economic um, uh, priorities that was probably very poorly articulated to you before is captured in what we call our strategic economic plan. And that was born after, out of two years of really hard work led by the private sector, but supported by the public institutions 
the, the councils, um, the universities, the colleges and others that became this articulation of innovation-led growth and where we broke through the barrier of seeing the importance of creating wealth, but wealth that uh, captured in an inclusive growth strategy. So business is, is a key element to this, but it has to recognize that it can only be successful in its partnership, in its relationship with these other civic and public institutions. And are you getting the right support from central government? We've had, as I said at the beginning, 60 years of failed regional economic policies in this country. Are they getting it right this time? It's stuttering, really, it's stuttering. Um, the, I think it, it was, um, it was an incredibly important step that the government took um, uh, to introduce the idea of devolution to, to English regions and to, and to create mayoral combined authorities. And um, I welcome that move. And I say that as somebody who was not convinced that it was the right move at the time, very concerned about the whole issue of morality from the point of view what, what was this about the cult of sort of individual uh, leadership rather than institutional leadership but i have to say um i am a convert to this i am a convert to the opportunity that it creates however the the government's lost its way on devolution and has been has uh, has drawn back to, well, I was going to say it's drawn back to a, 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 West, a Westminster model where it decides policy, but in, in some ways it's worse than that. It, it's drawn back to a model where it asks us to, to say what we need, to say what the solutions are, then it marks our homework and tells us whether we got it right or not. And that can't be right. That can't be right. You can't make a judgment about what's right for South Yorkshire through a Westminster lens. You know, London is a fantastic economy. It is done phenomenal um, amounts of, uh, and indeed we'd be, as, as, in, as, as a, an economy in the UK, we'd be in a mess without London's role. But we have to recognise, and the government has to recognise, it's not sustainable. That there, any, any economist will tell you that, 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 that the increasing monopolistic um, dependency on London will ultimately lead to a market correction. And when so much of the economy is vested in one place and one set of institutions, when that when that correction comes, it comes in the form of huge problems of the like we saw in 2008. So for me, um, we have to see that change. Of course, I'm welcoming the, the whole opportunity that, that the levelling up agenda um, is meant to bring with us. Disappointed with the outcome of the spending review, which didn't seem to me to represent a real investment in levelling up. 
but hopeful that the white paper on levelling up will bring bring back some of that recognition uh, around the real true opportunity of devolution which is not that our solutions were going to be either thought of or delivered tomorrow but that that would really embrace uh, that desire that cut that came with mayoral combined authorities and bringing the institutions that came with that together about the the, the wish to bring accountability and responsibility and decision making to a local level that respected place but understood the levers of what needed to change to change the economy and I, and I really sincerely hope that the leveling up white paper will begin to um, move that get back into that space again one final question before we throw it open to q a if you were here at the uh, session last week on skills formation what would you have said was particularly important in that regard in the south yorkshire region um well i'd begin by a quote i'm i i belong to the um dolly parton school of philosophy and, and dolly parton said know who you are and do it on purpose and um i i absolutely fundamentally believe that um that driving change in the economy and understanding how to upskill the workforce is about grasping that philosophy is about saying we understand at least within the next period what our prime capabilities are and we understand subject to um, the right public policy the right relationship with the private sector and so on how to unlock that capability but in order to realize it we have to galvanize a skill system that begins from the point of view of um of the of the actual and potential users of that skill system that lead, that takes them on a pathway from where they are to access the jobs and opportunity that will be unlocked through this process so much of our skill system is siloed around a set of arrangements that are governed partly by the economy of skills so where the money goes and partly by the institutions that occupy the skills landscape it is an incredibly complex set of institutional arrangements that even those who are steeped in it struggle to understand and make sense of so if you are an, an 18 year old in Goldthorpe in Barnsley looking to move into the development of a set of skills that take you from level two up to level three and through level three to level four you cannot plan in a single straightforward pathway how to get there you have to go through um, 
various side roads, some of which are cul-de-sacs, come back onto the road, go down, overcome a hump, go down a different side road, come out, go back. Sometimes take three steps back again, then move forward four steps. Are we really, really giving those people a chance? At the other end of the spectrum, we have fantastically clever um, undergraduates and post postgraduates working at our universities who are inventing phenomenal IPs. Just consider how much of that we just simply lose, not just to the universities or not just to our region, but probably to the UK, because we haven't got a system that supports them, finance being one of them, but real advisors, real angel investors, real systems and processes of successful business people that can help those very clever people unlock those ideas to become the enterprises of tomorrow. So at every level of the spectrum in our skills, we have to begin from asking ourselves some fundamental questions about, about, about the users of our system and how we really unlock our, their potential rather than beginning from where our providers are. Great, thank you very much indeed. Let me now throw it open to questions and who'd like to start? Hello, thank you for that. I was going to ask you this idea, you said you've been a convert. Um, obviously you've worked in local authorities in big cities in different roles, and now you're working in a, a combined city regional authority. What are the areas of your conversion from your experience, not just ideas, but from your actual experience? What are the advantages that you've perceived from this kind of model, um, either over and above or in addition to or complementary to the, the most orthodox local government system as, you, as you've worked from? Thank you. <clears throat> the, the first big difference is, is, um, is simply the convening power, the mayor. The ability of a morality to bring together um, the interests of, of uh, and the interest groups across a place like South Yorkshire and to begin to build alliances that previously weren't there, both in the public and, and the private sector. And um, that hasn't existed in that way ever before. And I've seen the power of that. I, I saw that in action um, during the pandemic, where, where um, the impacts of the pandemic were felt by every private and public institution in South Yorkshire, as it was everywhere else. But the mayor had such an influence as to help those bodies to transcend just simply addressing their own institutional challenges to seeing how this was affecting the whole of South Yorkshire and to put in place a recovery plan that, yes, would benefit every institution, 
but would absolutely benefit the economy and the communities of South Yorkshire. And that was phenomenal to see that happen. To see that happen in the teeth of a storm where we were all struggling, we'd all got those challenges. It's so easy for us to turn inwards to our own institution. So I'd identify that. The second one um, is, is, to, is, the is the creation of a narrative, is the ability to begin to articulate the sum total of our aspirations that, that people can recognise that there isn't aspirational in the sense of being so far left field that nobody can connect with it. But, it, but it's challenging, but it's rooted in, in the experiences of the people and institutions and communities and businesses that are already in South Yorkshire. That's a very, very powerful weapon. The third and final one that I'm drawing from experience is the ability is the ability to have real influence on government policy and um, and attitude. So making connect connection with um, senior politicians in government to influence their thinking, uh, both on an ideas level, but also on a very practical level. So if, if I take if I take the current mayor literally doing deals with government and saying, um, we want to bring this business, this business wants to come to South Yorkshire. We will put some resource in, we will invest in this business opportunity, but to make it work, we need you to commit to this too. And if we do it together, well, well, that's really challenging. That's really breaking down barriers. That's really introducing new methods and ways of working and 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 doing that uh, is creates real enablement from my point of view so those those would be my examples thank you i think there's a question here let me just remind you online uh to put your questions in the zoom q a yeah, thank you very much. On the back of that, actually, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about where you think devolution needs to go next, and not just in terms of at a local level, but also at a national level, because there has been talk and there has been some ideas floated about a possible replacement of the House of Lords to possibly a House of Regions or something like that. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. But also on the levelling up agenda, I was wondering if you can tell us what your experience is your experience has been so far of the government consulting local authorities on the forthcoming white paper? Uh, on, on the first element of that, I think the um, I think we have to understand evolution um, and really start to embrace um, the principle of decisions being made at the lowest appropriate level. So that question of ensuring um, that we are mature enough in our public policy and in our politics, um, that people not only will make decisions at a local level, but will stand accountable and responsible for those decisions. If we're truly to embrace that, 
um, then the natural follow-on is that the mechanics of achieving that would follow so that, so that there would be properly devolved powers and finances um, to a local level for which local politicians would have to account both in taxation terms and in expenditure terms to the local population for the decisions that they are making. At the moment, we are locked into um, what, what I would describe as a, a parent-child relationship. And depending on the nature of the politics and, and the environment and circumstances at the time, it's either a punitive parent uh, with a difficult child <laughs> or a forgiving parent with, with, an, with an accommodating child. And we, that, that dynamic varies over time, but it hasn't really changed the relationship. And really what we've got to get to is a much more adult-to-adult -adult conversation where, where the accountability of a mayor, of local public institutions, is not back to parliament, it's not to a minister, it's to the public of South Yorkshire for a properly ascribed and devolved powers and funding and taxation. We are a long way from achieving that. But that, for me, would be about bracing, embracing devolution. Could, could I just follow up before we go to the next question on that? In asking, to what extent do you think giving central government the confidence to do that depends on increasing the skill base of people in local and regional government? Or do you think it already exists and that that, that trust and confidence should already exist in central government? I think in, in its core elements, it already exists. I think, I think what, of course, is lacked um, is experience of doing it. Um, the, um, but what if you understand, you know, you can't, you can't teach experience, experience exists. If, if we really embraced the idea and recognised skills exist, but experience doesn't, then of course you overcome those risks by deploying experienced people into local areas so that their accountability is to the local area to provide and support uh, local politicians who are ultimately accountable to reach the right decisions and to be responsible and accountable for those decisions. So the child can only get the experience once the parent lets go and lets them build exactly so. experience. Exactly so. Exactly so. Thank you. So how do you balance today investing in kind of new industries that may be gone tomorrow how do you invest in resilience so that the community so what what happened uh, years ago would not happen again for example with the introduction of artificial intelligence the change of the job market and so on so that the community in, in the region is resilient and is able to adapt to the to the changing markets rather than go uh, through what what it had gone through before i think the, the the key to this is, is actually one of the words you said, it, it, it's about the adaptability of the skills that we generate for people. So um, 
So the, the economy, the economy as, we, as far as we can predict it, is going to lead to further change. It's going to lead to increasingly increasing drives around knowledge-based services. And the, the challenge, particularly those, for, those with the least skills and those furthest away from the opportunity, is that they they are the they are the most um, vulnerable in terms of the sorts of industries, the entry level type of work that um, um, that's available to them. So the question for me is is in the nature of the skills that we provide to those people in their development, so that they so that we um, equip them with skills that are adaptable and adjustable to changing functions and and workplaces. We see this a lot already in, um, in relatively well-educated young people. So I see in this in my own, in my, my own ch children who are in their late 20s. They, they don't have the same loyalty to individual, an individual company uh, or organization that I would have had when I was young because they've got skills that they know are transferable into a number of different companies, sectors, and industries. And we have to learn and adapt those lessons to those who are less skilled to create those same opportunities because the world of work is not going to be, you're going to a job at, on, when you leave school or university and you're in the same organization until you retire. And that's true whatever your level of skill is. So that adaptability is key for me, absolutely key. And does that require us to rethink the nature of skill formation as a lifetime passport in which you can be continuously re-educated through? Your Most definitely, and it comes back to this pathway. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Um, there's so many questions I'd like to ask, but I just think most profitable is to pursue a line of question that's already been there, and it relates to the central concept of the until we get parity of esteem between central and local government we might never make real progress and in that you've touched on this already which is the whole issue of fiscal devolution it's i, I might have asked you another question about which powers would the mayor like if to add to his portfolio and i suspect the answer any sensible mayor would say none until you give me the resources and control <laughs> resources because all you're doing is transferring responsibility without the power. So at the heart of this, and it's a problem that we have in work I'm involved with, with Philip and others, is what model of fiscal devolution in a country that's so centralized will work without itself becoming part of the problem? And do you have such a model? Because if it works in South Yorkshire, then it's something that will work anywhere, I suspect. No, I don't have the model. Um, I, I, I wish I did. I, I, I see. I see this um, far cleverer people than me. Maybe you need to work this out. But uh, but what but what I do see is that um, um, we we as in um, the local state as well as central government in a, have to embrace the model, but recognise there are going to be a series of steps. As, as we transfer responsibility, fiscal responsibility. And that works for both ways. You know, to be fair to any, any government, 
one of the challenges, le legitimate challenges, uh, that's been made uh, of um, um, the north of England fr from a Westminster government is um, that at the moment um, we, we want the money, but but the politicians locally don't want to don't want government says don't want to be held responsible in the electorate for having taxated to, to, to access that money. So the government argues, you know, that they're, they're, they're taking the decisions to tax. To, to, so facing the electorate on that element, uh, but, but local government wants to spend the money. Um, well, obviously, um, the answer from local government is you don't give us the opportunity to play both roles. So the real opportunity is to incrementally shift that responsibility in the same sensible way that you would do it about layers of decision making about what's appropriate to tax and, uh, and, and spend locally. Uh, but shift the power, shift the power and responsibility so, so, so that local politicians are responsible and do have to account to the electorate for, for local taxation and local decision making. And, and I, I think just simply doing that would do much to grow experience and, uh, uh, and to level up um, the relationship between central and local government. Do you want to come back, Vincent, and pose another of your questions? I suspect, I mean, it's complex, and, and the work we've done, we actually, uh, that's with the UK 2070 Commission, we actually decided it would be wrong for us to, to come up with a preferred solution because it was so complex, and we weren't trying to fudge it, but we felt that there needed to be a collective conversation nationally about how that is done. Uh, and, uh, and actually, it didn't, shouldn't take so long we talked about whether it should be a Royal Commission and, and the advice from our chair was, don't go down that line. We can bring the people together. And we actually thought we could do it in a year with the right people around the table, because there's so much knowledge there and there's so much experience nationally. And, and I actually worked in Scotland a long time with Strathclyde Regional Council. And that experience for me demonstrated that actually local government can act at scale responsibly. In fact, it acted so responsibly that the last, in, in its last throws, the, the central government tried to get it to set an illegal budget so they could say, that's why we're getting rid of it. And it actually understood the fiscal rules better than the Treasury and uh, avoided having to do that. But, but what I'm saying is that um, people talk about lack of trust because they can't do it. My experience is actually starting from nothing in Strathclyde, they created a very powerful, responsible, in fact, it was so powerful and responsible, the central government wanted to get rid of it. That's the first thing. The second thing is on this is, um, the, is actually just being very clear about this issue. And you talk about incremental, and I don't disagree, and you have far more experience than I do of this. But I just think on some things, we actually need to have sea changes. You can't do it incrementally. There needs to be something which you've read about. And, and, and that's something which obviously I would like to explore uh, further because I just feel that uh, we've got to a point that we need change. When, 
I started in local government when you started, I think we had 40% control of money. And when you can put money on the table, it changes the whole dynamic of the conversations. It does. And I think the other thing that you've not touched on in, in terms of, and I go along with everything you said about that convening power as being absolutely critical and having a voice for that region, which even though there's hysterical arguments going on underneath, always will do, is actually the, 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 the importance of dealing at that scale, you can actually deal with distributive issues within it without it in a way that's managed and actually you can deal with the issues of Barnsley and there's some real issues of geography of equality within your area which are different to those of Manchester mm. um, and, and it's not a criticism it's just a fact mm. uh, and and you could you can deal with those in a way no one else can it's usually that that's underestimated in terms of the value that a, mayor, a mayoral complex can bring to it I agree with all your points, uh, and certainly how you unwrap, unpack fiscal devolution um, is uh, will rest in understanding the detail and planning that. So the idea of a national conversation, um, I think, is an in incredibly positive one. So long as the principles of what we're seeking to do have been agreed and there is a consensus, Otherwise, it become a very dysfunctional conversation. But the detailed mechanics are the thing that we then have to lead on to. So it's done in a measured way. Maybe some of it is a sea change. Maybe some of it's incremental. But we'll only know that when we begin to uh, begin to unpack the detail of it, and and which should be the basis of a conversation. But at the moment, it feels like we can't get beyond base one, which is. Do we really, are we really collectively embracing de de devolution? I've got a question online. Uh, this is Ian Taylor from the Brilavatnik School. What do you think about the mayoral development corporations as an instrument to stimulate development? It's, it's an important model, but it, that, that's what it is. It, it's, the, it's the means of, um, focusing um, resource, people, expertise, finance, in the development of certain types of um, um, it, land and property areas. But, but I wouldn't get carried away with it. The real challenge, you know, and we've seen this over the years, different models being brought forward by in different pub, pu public policy um, iterations is they quickly become the latest God to pray to, as though they're the answer to the problem, rather than being an answer to certain problems. So understanding where the benefit of those things come in uh, is, really, is really the critical issue about deciding when to deploy them, but also understanding when not to, and when another, another infrastructure or fiscal model would better suit the needs of a community or a are a problem-solving issue. So they're a brilliant piece of the armory, but in themselves, that's what they are. Question online. Um, this is from Adam Swallow. He says, the role of regions in industrial policy setting be via SMEs or political leadership. Where is the balance? 
Could you just repeat the question? Sorry, I think I missed. No, so the role of regions in industrial policy setting uh, via, be via SMEs or political leadership. I think it's supposed to say, okay. should it, yeah. Where is the balance? Oh, I think, I think, I think the balance is and that we draw, we need to draw on the experience uh, of our SMEs, um, the, the lessons learned and their intentions and aspirations as businesses. Um, but that has to be then interpreted in terms of how that might benefit um, the economy overall. So, so it's more than the sum of the parts. So the contribution provides the, provides the core of a narrative, but that has to be overlaid with um, a, a sense of direction and purpose for places that are above and beyond the experiences and interests of individual SMEs. And so there is a role for both, but there's an overlaying role in terms of place at the end of the day has to be the driver because only in place will we create the confidence the energy and the direction against which ultimately an sme can thrive in terms of its opportunity to workforce its opportunity to it's to the in the place question there so thank you very much for the interesting ideas um you talked about people knowing what they're there for and narrative and you talked about sheffield and steel and materials um is the pitch for sheffield is there an elevator pitch for sheffield which is now mostly about materials um and maybe un, maybe somewhat related another question about your ideas about how to develop and get to a happy place is there a, another set of cities that you look to as the examples of, of success? I mean, do you look to Manchester, Preston, Corby, or, or other places abroad? Um, um, I'll answer you a second about your question first. Uh, yes, of course, we try to draw on, uh, on the experiences of a range of places in the UK, but, but also internationally. The question, the question that we have to address for ourselves in the analysis of those places and and their successes and where and where things have not worked is um is to is to better understand their applicability to us in our circumstances because that's not always evident to start with um and uh, uh th that's where a lot of unpacking goes but yes brought uh, but in principle yes we do um we find it, it it's really interesting from our point of view that if I take one example, um, uh, if I take uh, Man Manchester, um, who are obviously further on in their journey of maturing by dint of that they started much earlier, they've, they've evolved and so on, although still they would say um, a long way to go. Um, how they matured uh, is, a, is a key lesson for us and one that we continue to have to learn. So, for example, um, it always strikes me that, of course, at the centre of the, of, the, of the Greater Manchester Combined Authority is Manchester. And I think what Manchester got right um, was 
was really understanding that in order to be influential in the greater Manchester economy, it sometimes needed to cede power to increase its influence. So it's not simply about the core city um, controlling things and making the decisions. It's about the core city recognising the needs and aspirations and interests of the various towns and urban areas that were part of Greater Manchester and how their needs could be met and indeed how, how Manchester City could enable those needs to be met. For less mature places like, uh, um, like South, uh, South Yorkshire Mayoral Combined Authority, we're still learning that lesson. We're still learning how to, how between the, the big conurbation of, of, of Sheffield, how it understands and relates to and is interdependent with the successes and, um, and challenges that are faced in the rest of South Yorkshire. So that's just one example where we needed to learn that lesson. lesson. Sorry, I, I, I've forgotten the first part of your question, I beg your pardon. It was basically, what's the elevator pitch for Sheffield? Okay, so um, our elevator pitch is, is, is essentially around, um, is around, the, is around the innovation in our core capabilities. So it's saying our history in South Yorkshire is around some key capabilities, which are principally in materials, uh, energy, um, and uh, manufacturing processes, in health and well-being, and some elements of logistics. Those are our core competencies. But what we're doing in the fourth generation industrial revolution is innovating around those same capabilities that, that, that generated the wealth and prosperity in South Yorkshire in the first generation. That's our pitch. Thanks for the wonderful talk. Um, you spoke a lot about experience and um, just thinking about the private sector, you mentioned the SMEs a lot. And I'm wondering about if you are to bring those industries to scale, there's inevitably going to be the need for experience from larger companies. And I, I, I was struck by the fact that the idea of attracting large global companies uh, to the region wasn't really discussed that much. And I'm just curious about, you know, what are the opportunities there? What role is there a need for collaboration with the central government there? Um, is there more active industrial policy required there? Um, because my sense is that in order for small and medium enterprises to thrive, coming from where I, I come from Dublin, a lot of the companies that I see that are the small companies that thrive, they came from the people who left Dell, the people who left Google, the people who left LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. And I wonder if, if that could be replicated in South Yorkshire. It, it is absolutely necessary and integral to uh, our success to be able to attract uh, businesses um, with scale um, on an from on an international basis. Um, we do some of that uh, in this magnet effect I was explaining to you before uh, through through the through the two universities. Um, but we need to do it far better as a place, but also, but also as a country. Um, 
And I'll make a, a, a couple of observations that strike me from your comments that, that I think reinforce you, what you're saying. The, the, the first one is that we're currently pretty dominated, as we are in other sectors, areas of public policy, uh, by, by, cent by central government, principally through DIT, in this context of inward investment. And the challenge, and the challenge that I would make of DIT is, is it works on the basis of being placed, it, call, it, it refers to itself as being placed blind. That it, that it won't enter into, it won't enter into a relationship with a company who's looking for a, a um, um, who's looking to site in the UK. Uh, DIT won't encourage it to go to particular places. It, it plays neutral. Neutral. Well, for me, from my perspective, in the context of the economy we have in England, that doesn't lead to a neutral outcome. It leads to increasing density of business in London and the South East, naturally so, for those businesses. So, so you can't be place blind, is my argument. So public policy at a national level needs to change, but it needs to, it needs to embrace a stronger narrative from the regions about capabilities. And what we have to do better and mature in is really describing where our, what our capabilities are. And uh, at our worst, what we do is claim to be capable of anything when we're clearly not by any, by any measure of evidence. So once you start to say, what are our capabilities? It, it quickly becomes, oh, and another thing. <laughs> instead of really being clear with ourselves, what we do offer. My, my experience, I, I, I think I'll cite an example from previous role, if I may. When I was in Sunderland, it was a lot easier because our prime capability was, was the automotive industry. We've got this huge car plant called Nissan in Sunderland and, um, and a workforce um, that was massively productive. Not because it was the cheapest workforce that Nissan had got anywhere, because it clearly wasn't, but because it had such a low level of turnover um, that, that, that mitigated the effects of higher wages. And in Nissan globally, it was the second most productive plant globally. So we had a prime capability that allowed us, with Nissan's support, to, um, w when Nissan changed its global uh, manufacturing policy and wanted to disperse um, much more of its capacity worldwide following, um, following the nuclear accident and the, and the tsunami in, in Japan, it changed its position to wanting to disperse. Um, we worked with Nissan about um, bringing to, our, to the plant in Sunderland much more of its supply chain. And we went up from, in five years, we went up from two suppliers who were near Nissan to 30 suppliers. And what we learned in that period is there is, um, for the automotive industry, there is a hierarchy of needs, a bit like Maslow's hierarchy. 
and understanding that hierarchy was what ultimately led to our ability to attract and retain those suppliers to that big industry. Now, of course, great, we could do that with one big, one big manufacturer. In, in, an, in an environment in South Yorkshire, it's much more difficult to do where you don't have one big manufacturer or one big OEM. So our ability to, to um, describe those prime capabilities and then apply that hierarchy of needs that would attract and retain those potential investors is much more difficult to solve. But it is a problem we have to tackle because only when we do that will we really turn the aspiration into a landable uh, proposition from a, from a footloose business that's looking anywhere in in the UK to to base to base its plant or uh, or its sector. I hope that makes sense. Right, I'm afraid we're out of time, but I'm going to just very quickly use the chair's prerogative to ask you a final question. Looking back in five or ten years' time, what would you most likely? What are the two things that you would most like to see in the South Yorkshire region that aren't there at the moment? Oh, I think, um, I think a population that has retained its, val its core values. And, and, and there are some values that despite, despite the all the decimation I was outlining earlier, that people retain is really, really important uh, to their identity as being part of South Yorkshire. And they're about, they're about fairness. They're about the desire to be inclusive. They're about a sense of well-being. And those things are really important to retain. But to match those with a much more sense of optimism and a sense of prosperity a sense of choice, a sense of being able to make more people being able to make more choices in their lives. And to do that by having um, an education and skill system supporting uh, a business landscape that really provides for people's futures, that really gives them not just a job, but a sense of a future and a sense of being part of an economy and part of a country that is playing, is playing a, um, a role globally um, and, and being a net contributor um, to the UK's economy. If we, can, if we can see that happening, not necessarily concluded in that period, but see that see that momentum um then uh, I, I that would make that I, that would make me happy well dave smith uh, you've given us a fantastic description of the challenges and opportunities that face the south yorkshire area thank you very much indeed for having done it thank you very much thank you.